This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. Takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. Hello and welcome to the Carousel Podcast. Today I have two guests. Um, one is Adam Singer. The other is Chris Gaddick. They work at a company called AdQuick, which specializes in what we call in the ad world OOH out of home, which means basically billboards and the wheat pace you see around your city all the time. Um, their platform is a marketplace for OH and it solves the problems of both selling these, you know, uh, appearances or placements, whatever you call them and billboards and elsewhere. And then also measurement, which is notoriously impossible because how the hell do you measure the impact of a billboard? You don't have any real way to do it. So you guys are solving those problems. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Man. Good to be here. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I, I think first and foremost, what I want to talk about is just out of home advertising in general. Like, why does anybody care about this stuff? Do billboards just suck? Are they terrible? You know, I mean, you look at a place like didn't Brazil outlaw billboards entirely and it's a huge victory. You know, back when I was more of a Marxist, like uh, I hated billboards. I was like, let's burn them. Let's burn down all the billboards. <laughs> But, you know, then I embrace the fact that I actually kind of love billboards. So I guess I wanted to ask you guys, uh, first and foremost, what are your favorite billboards ever? Or at least out-of-home campaigns. So that could include, like, guerrilla campaigns as well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chime in first and then let Chris go. But cool. I'll push back on saying people don't like billboards. So billboards are the number one ad format that people organically share online in their you know, stream-based feeds in their Instagram um, when they're making TikTok videos. They're very American to walk around a city and see billboards, to be at a sporting match, see, you know, adver advertisements at the game, be at an airport and see enterprise software ads. And the really cool ads end up being conversation starters online. And so they're also the only unskippable ad format. So we have two things, the most shared and the only unskippable ad format. So if you're a marketer and you're really creative and good at your job, people will now organically take your ads and share them with their followers in a part of the stream, which is not, which is the editorial of the stream, right? So um, I think that as people have this, you know, th th this overwhelming, um, you know, sense of being on their cell phones too much and wanting to connect with people and being present, OOH ads, out-of-home ads will just continue to rise in value. And if you really think about it and go back, uh, billboards in a town square are the most Lindy form of advertisement. They were what we first saw when we were going into a town square. Which saloon would we go to? Who would we have our clothes pressed at, right? So um, I'll let Chris chime in because certainly bad billboards suffer the same blindness that online ad billboards um, 
fine. But I think that there, there are kind of a sleeper ad format that we're seeing a resurgence in. Right on. Uh, so in terms of uh, favorite billboards, um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll answer this two, two ways. One is one that's a historical billboard that has been known, but I have never witnessed in real life because uh, it was put up in like 1966. So you're in LA, right, Isaac? Yep. So uh, the Sunset Strip billboards, uh, they came to prominence in the late 60s. Um, being, and uh, I'm a musician and, you know, music is my hobby, but uh, the Sunset Strip billboards that you and I see in our day-to-days in LA, um, you know, were originally used heavily for uh, promoting musical acts. And AdQuick is a Venice Beach-based company, um, for better or for worse. Um, but uh, the one of the coolest, my favorite billboards was The Doors actually put their debut album up on a hand-painted billboard by Foster and Kleiser on the Sunset Strip in 1966. And the cool thing around this billboard was uh, they put all four of their faces on there and you didn't know who the lead singer was or who the, who the front man was. And so that kind of, at the time, it drew a lot of curiosity, built a, built up a lot of buzz and ultimately led the doors to having a pretty successful career, um, you know, uh, thereafter. And the cool thing is uh, we also used to hang out at the same bar as uh, as the doors, uh, you know, when uh, when we were still in the office at AdQuick. Um, in terms of contemporaneous favorite billboards, um, I really like the ones that make you laugh and chuckle. Um, a good example is a former customer of ours, Lyft. Uh, if you're familiar with San Francisco, there's a Shell gas station near an off-ramp on 8th and Harrison. It's basically where you get on the 101 going south, or if you choose to go to Oakland, 80 going east. But there's an on-ramp, and everybody's always stuck in traffic there. And so just for the audience, like the rule of thumb for billboards is you want to make a quick impact, a couple words, uh, you know, no more than four or five, because, uh, you know, it, then the message won't stick. However, but since since uh, the media buyers knew this area pretty well and knew that people were just on that on ramp stuck in traffic in the parking lot, uh, they used the op- they used the billboard right adjacent to that um, that on ramp to post a longer message, which was kind of funny. And I actually have it pulled up here. I'll read you read you the copy. And it says, this is a bad sign. Right now, you're supposed to be going pretty fast, which is why most billboards only have like three or four words. But this one has 90. And the fact that you've read this many of them in the middle of the road is a pretty good indication that something's gone wrong. We're not going to sit here and pretend it'll be easy to fix, but we have a pretty good idea. And if you download the app, you'll have it too. Riding is the new driving. Like, killer, you know? And so I think that's probably got to be one of the most creative and useful, uh, you know, creative ways to use that real estate, given the environment and where it was located. And that was Lyft? Yeah. So can you just put the link in here? We might as well look at these things. I mean, if people are. Yeah. yeah. But, on, um, yeah. So here's the doors one. Um, I mean, not that we have a big audience. Oh, also. So yeah, yeah be, this basically was the first billboard in Sunset Strip. It's saying like this was the first one more or less yeah the first music one for sure oh, wow. i think think they did like uh, a couple of things for like promoting like vegas casinos in the 50s but for the most part this is uh where how it all got started and it's uh, funny because it looks so contemporary you know it's like it looks like this could be taken today and this is 1966 it's 
wild. And they were hand painted. They weren't printed yeah. on vinyl like we do now. Uh, it's also very interesting that, you know, in, in favor of billboards, what are the two most iconic places in the two biggest cities in America? It's got to be Times Square and the Sunset Strip. And what are both of those things? They're just a bunch of billboards. Like that's yeah, exactly. that's like literally all that it is. It's it's so American, these billboards. I mean, conversely, you could uh you could say the same thing about London and Tokyo, right? You got Piccadilly Circus, uh also the, plastered with billboards, iconic, and then uh Shibuya. And the sides of the the double decker buses in London all have out of home ads on them too. That's also OOH, so yeah oh right yeah yeah the bus signs okay so here's this one. Oh yeah yeah this was like the beginning of this phase of like that ultimately culminated in oatly right these like wall of text type ads you i mean that's the other one i have pulled up right now <laughs> i wrote one of those i wrote one of those oatly ads the the weirder than buying a giant billboard to pr promote a free newsletter one well i did it for a partner of oatley's so it was like sponsored by oatley but it was like a side campaign because it was somebody oatley was partnering with but they wanted one of these oatley billboards so i wrote one for them um but, but but that was pre-seed pre seed oil uh seed oil <laughs> recognition although you know whatever we do what we we need to do for money but all right so what about you adam in terms of favorite billboard, yeah, I think the, on the, spot the Quintus, no, 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 no. So the favorite one is just going to be the one that comes to mind. It's the Coke billboard entering San Francisco. Every time you enter the city, you know, I always see that billboard and it's just like part of it. They've had it so long. It's part of the San Francisco landscape. Oh, wow. And it's like, oh yeah. Okay, cool. And, and this is just like, they don't, oh wait. So they say it's gone now. <laughs> Oh, yeah. well, it, down. it used to be there. You asked my favorite of all time. The Doors one isn't there anymore either. Just well, like, San Francisco is like everything else in San Francisco. Tough, tough sell on San Francisco right now. I don't live there anymore, so they can uh, they can do what they want. Anyway. No, I think it just it, it just was taken down. I think yep. uh, yeah, so a couple I years think, ago. Yeah, right, right. But it was up there for like thirty years. Yeah, totally, totally. No, oh no, nineteen thirty-seven. Oh yeah, and of course they have to destroy it because the, what are they going to put up there now? It's going to be you know who knows. Yeah, some something to do with AI, I'm sure. Oh right, um, cool. Uh, yeah. Well, so why do you love that one so much, Adam? Um, you know, it's it was just probably one of the first. I'm a marketer, so you know. You've talked to me before about my love of marketing. It was one of the first things I think I noticed when I was even going to San Francisco on my first trip. So it got sort of imprinted and ingrained in my brain as, as part of the landscape. And I think, you know, we're talking about um, the ad format. I think in a capitalist society, if you want to tell people about things, we're going to have ads. So it's, it's not pure word of mouth. We're all not you know, going to the store and guessing what to buy. We probably need some prodding, whether that is an ad, whether that is organic and, you know, something that was recommended. Um, so I don't think it's a bad thing. I'm, I'm a capitalist. And so I want, you know, brands to do things that are maybe a little bit wasteful, maybe a little bit creative, but to do something that shows that, you know, they're, they're, they're beyond just, this product that they're selling for money back that they actually they're signaling to the market that they care about their craft. They care about, you know, their industry, they care about whatever it is they're doing beyond merely, you know, having a transactional thing. And I think that's sort of 
advertising is sort of can be the the human part of of a capitalist world where um, you are embracing storytelling and narrative into what you're doing. So it's not purely transactional. There's some emotion there. Totally, and and it's and it's an opportunity to create emotion. I mean, it's an opportunity to build your environment. I mean, you know, a, a, a billboard sits right next to a tree. And that Coca-Cola sign is just like such, it's like just as much a part of the environment as a tree, <laughs> you know, in every way. It's, it's in fact, it's like, you know, more interesting in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, of course, within limits though, right? Because then it, it becomes this thing that is also people can put really bad stuff on it and, and really harm the environment. Um, so how do you measure the impact of a, of a billboard? Yeah. In a lot of ways, Chris, you want to take this and give the brief overview? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, historically it's been like panel interviews and it, and it hasn't been, uh, a very scientific in the past, but, uh, in, in the last few years, we've gotten pretty, uh, quantitative about how we go about how we calculate this stuff. But uh, just to kind of uh, make to briefly kind of package this up for you guys. So everybody has a leash in their pocket, mobile device. Um, your apps don't make money by telling or your weather app doesn't make money by telling you it's going to rain tomorrow. So what modern companies are doing is that they are buying uh, anonymized mobile location data. So add quick, you know, ingest five billion of these pings into the platform a day. And so each piece of inventory in the in the uh, in the platform in the marketplace has geo coordinates let long uh, and depending on the size and how high off the ground it is and what side it's on and, and a handful of other things, uh, we create a view shed uh, based on the attributes of the piece of inventory. So a view okay. shed is a hold polygon. On, hold on. Okay. Let's, Are we let's getting too normify technical? this. Okay. So you started by talking about the weather app because. You're saying that the weather apps make money by selling the data, the, the location data to someone, right? Correct. They sell yep. the location data. And then that becomes a, what did you call it? Uh, it's basically just a, a data, a piece of data. And so you get, uh, uh, you get a hashed, hashed ID for the mobile device and you get a lat and a long. What's and a a time What's, oh, a lat and a longitude. Yes. Okay. Okay. So and you have all this data and then so what happens? So, and we have all of the locations of said billboards. So we'll create a polygon around every piece of inventory in the platform. And when one of these mobile devices show up within uh, one of the polygons that we created for the inventory, we'll count that as an exposure. Uh, and so, so that's half. It's that's, tracking people. Yes. So that's half. <laughs> well, that's anonymous. But yeah, it's, it's a really it's a really sampled yeah, version totally. of it, which is still orders of magnitude better than someone sitting outside a building clicking, you know, a, a counter <laughs> yeah. of the people running by, which is how it used to be done. It still is. Um, when I was before being on the tech side and I was sold billboards, they would estimate the number of people that would walk by a given building on by a day clicking, by sitting there and clicking. Yeah, yeah. and they they had a number, and so this is a more you know quantitative automated fashion of doing that. So do you think people should be upset though about the tracking elements of it or is well, are you upset by the fact that a website you visit, you know, tracks you, right? So 
Um, it's, we're really duplicating a lot of right. the digital world online. Now, I think where people would be upset, I, you should be upset online or offline, is if any of your PII, your personally identifiable information, is, is sold to anyone, which in the case of our platform or in the case of an AdWords, um, can't speak for Facebook as much, but that data is never given to the, the actual advertiser like your personal information is not get, no one has that yeah well and it wouldn't matter to them anyway well and yeah i guess it could because then you could do like demos that had certain traits right yeah in theory so yeah. we 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 collect the exposure and then we do a, some some wizardry uh and matching and associating those mobile devices with households and that way we can understand after dropping a pixel on somebody's website or dropping an SDK into an app, we can see if any uh, conversion events or success events yeah, occurred after the right. yeah after the exposure. And so, um, what we found is, you know, we can now at, in the year of our Lord twenty twenty three, we can back into ROAS with a mass reach channel uh, for the first time ever, and it's wait, pretty wait, exciting. Back into what return on ad spend? So. Okay. Uh, historically, the biggest challenge for marketers has been, hey, I don't know. I'm spending this money. I don't know if it works. We have an answer to that question now. Yes, totally. And so, I mean, feasibly, we have a lot more answers to this question, right? Because now we have all this conversion tracking in all forms of, of advertising, right? I worked in an influencer agency that used to do this thing of foot traffic. So they literally tracked foot traffic, Um after being hit with a with an ad in the grocery stores, so it would be like you know, did you receive the, you know, can drive promotion, and like, did you then go into the store? And theoretically, we could track it. It didn't ever really work that well. I did notice, but maybe it's it's um it's developed a long time since there. Uh, yeah. Okay. Very cool. Um. So Adam, you said that you love at marketing. Like, why do you love marketing? Sure, it's a great question. So um, I think that underrated is the fact that I'm a media nerd. Obviously, I used to have a blog about the media industry. I, you know, love cinema. I love really well-done narrative on TV. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, you know, quintessential um, comic book guy when it comes to media. I have references of, of everything we were talking about. Um, we were talking about Kevin Smith movies earlier. I think that was that was on that was with you guys. Maybe it was with something else. Anyway, um, marketing goes unappreciated of funding all of the cool media that we get, whether it's movies, TV, music, and so being a part of the sector that gets to fund really cool creative is is a great place to be. You know, people like to complain about um, you know social media platforms having ads, but but ads let that platform exist and pay for hosting so everyone can have access to, in theory, democratize information and support a free and open internet. And why is that important? Because that means, you know, we're basically creating um, no information asymmetry in society. Everyone can have access to the same news, to the same content, to the same, you know, stock information. You don't have to have a, you know, expensive Bloomberg terminal, right, to to trade off the same info. I mean, they still have an information advantage to some extent, but we're evening this out. And so in, in the current incantation of the internet, 
ads support so much. So when people are like using ad blockers, it's like, yeah, and you're making sure your favorite creator and your favorite podcaster or vlogger, you know, might not be getting paid as much. So um, I think that in in terms of being a, a realist, um, I realize I'm not interesting enough to to be, you know, in Hollywood on screen. And I actually don't want that kind of attention either. But I, I like the, I, I, I think that the ad industry is big enough and presents opportunity enough for any creative person to scratch that itch. And as we talked about on our previous podcast, you know, great advertising, if you, if you look at Ogilvy or, you know, any of the guys that we all look up to is a creative endeavor. You get to tell stories, you get to be paid to create narrative. I mean, that's fun as hell. And there's enough of that market for enough creative people to have a good living. And I would rather play that game than be a starving artist in Hollywood. And here's the cool thing. If you're a young person listening to this, if you're in advertising and successful, you generally can do well enough to have enough income to play guitar in your free time or make your own, you know, documentary film or have whatever your passion project is. And you don't have to rely on this to, to pay the bills. And I think it's a cool thing to have multiple creative pursuits. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, in terms of why am I passionate about it? Well, I've learned in life, find passion in the things that the market values and that you can find enjoyment in and you can win at life and not have to do the sort of thing that people say, which is um, chase your passion. I think that leads down a dark path. I think, you know, all the people who say that are billionaires who made their money in like smelting. And so why would we, why would, you know, it's, it's, it's not the world we live in. I'm very much a realist. And so, yeah, I, I think, um, I find passion in a lot of things. Normal people would find boring. I know Chris likes to listening to, you know, wall street earnings calls and like, how cool is that? He can, he's a nerd. He can find things interesting that normal people don't because he's super nerdy about that. And like, look, that, that's a great thing. Like why, why would you not want to find meaning in things that normal people would, would put them to sleep. Right. Those smelting billionaires, man. They're melting. <laughs> or like iron ore or something or real estate. Um, smelting millionaires could be here. He thought. <laughs> <laughs> we, we chose the wrong game, Isaac. We're too late. We're too late, guys. You know that meme that I'm talking about, Chris? I think you probably know. You know, with the with the guy driving with the gas. <laughs> Anything could be here. Smelting millionaires could be here. Uh, yeah, no, I, dude, I'm completely agree. I, I, um, I, you know, it goes even deeper. I mean, I think it goes back to exactly what you said of like, probably the first art was, you know, maybe it was a naked woman, right. Which is porn. Maybe it was, uh, some kind of animal because they're hungry or it was a fucking ad. It was a, it was a something advertising, you know, you were sketching, you were scratching something above so that people knew what to do. They knew how to do commerce with you. And I just think people really miss that. It's not just that ads support the rest of the thing. It's not this like devil's bargain where it's like, Oh, well, we got to do this shitty thing in order to do the good thing. It's, that it's all deeply connected and the message of one infiltrates the other. And, you know, the care we take to create that sign outside your window is really important. And it's really like you are building your own environment. And it's yeah. like to, to ignore that 
so many people in in my side of things just ignore that. And I mean, I, I guess I would ask, um, do you think that having a podcast about marketing and everything like that, like, why don't more people? What is like? Why don't more people understand what we understand? I guess is what I would say. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that the internet has to a good extent abused the notion of interrupting people to put a message in front of them and via the, 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 there's probably a little bit of a line you can go up to with this without suddenly trying to sort of strip mine yeah. attention right. and trying to use everything as a we we're talking a little bit about transactional versus emotive um i think there's a little bit of because of how some of these types of ad supported companies work and because of the pressures of wall street there these companies have a little bit of an incentive to over optimize for advertising to meet specific goals in the quarter and what this can do is this can create this experience where oh you signed on for a product and at first it was all of your friends updates or it was all just news and editorial and over time there became more and more ads and then so that created an opportunity for another startup to sort of do the same thing and repeat into oblivion and i think the problem there is when you abuse the 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 sort of uh you know the the attention of your users and you and you start to disrespect the user experience to be bad then you get people who are going to just write off all of advertising. Oh, they're all just snake oil salesmen or they're just raw capitalist value extractors. And it doesn't have to be that way. And I think this is, there's a lot of things that the internet has, has done this to where we're in this hyper, you know, transactional hyper capitalist landscape where everything gets optimized and over optimized. And at some point there has to be maybe attrition and a little bit of pain for that company to realize they've, they've extracted too much value because how else would you know? And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's probably a little bit of the reason. I think there's also the, the, the type of people that listen to like Bill Hicks and, you know, he hates advertisers and marketers, but at the same time, read, there's a great book by uh, Daniel Pink. He's a um, behavioral um, economist or psychologist. psychologist. Yeah, yeah. And he wrote a book called To Sell as Human. And he goes back to talk about the things you were saying, Isaac, if you were to look at the first ads, you know, what were they for? And, you know, what, why is that? Yeah. Why is anything the way it even is now? And it turns out trade going back to the Phoenicians has been a, a thing that builds civilizations. You need humans to barter with each other. You need people to collaborate. You need incentives. And so to some extent, um, to hate advertising is to hate modern capitalism and, you know, to want the socialist world of everyone gets the same chicken sandwich, which we shouldn't, no one should want that. And so I think, you know, it, it'll be a balancing function in time as we figure out this new medium of the internet, which um, look, there's still people that haven't fully adjusted to the industrial economy. And we're just like, go, we're speed running the internet economy to the AI economy and uh, to the VR economy. So, um, everything's a little chaotic now, but um, I, I think these things will find a balance and hopefully we get more good actors. You know, I, I, I know that um, 
Some people love Elon. Some people hate Elon. Some people like Zuck. Some people hate Zuck. There's a bunch of different experiments being run right now. And um, I think that makes it an exciting time to be in marketing because you get to sort of still be a pioneer here. It's not like we're in investment banking or we're in, you know, we're, we're in life insurance, working on actuary tables, right? Like, like we're in sort of a more creative space and not just even in the actual product, but in the platforms that we use, which I think makes it a cool challenge. Um, so, so yeah, that's a little bit of a, a long answer, but I, I'm not going to defend all of my peers. There are certainly bad actors that exploit that sell snake oil that, you know, exploit people's fear and FOMO and, um, whatever else. And I, I don't condone that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting industry. You couldn't call it boring. Yeah. And to do, to do advertising well, marketing well, I think there's like three components. There's got, there's a creative component. There's a certain degree of curiosity that the, the marketer on the, at the, at the advertiser needs to display, but ultimately the, the, the thing that differentiates poor marketing from great marketing is empathy. So putting yourself in, you know, the prospective client's shoes, um, and finding opportunities to educate, inform, delight, um, all at the same time. Uh, and if you check all those boxes, then, you know, there's a good chance that your pro product starts flying off the shelves. Uh, but it does require that genuine curiosity. Hey, um, I can't, this is, this is what, uh, consumer ac consumer a values about this product. If we take what consumer a, uh, consumer a said about the product and use that in our advertising campaign, uh, maybe other folks will kind of see, see it in that light as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's for sure true that in our contemporary world, sales is where the power is. I think in pre, you know any company you go to, any industry you're in, all the alpha ch chads are in sales, like inevitably. And uh, like I went to a, a breast cancer conference in to, for a client in, in San Antonio, the biggest breast cancer conference in the world, and it was like all a lot of salespeople there, and they're all like six four, <laughs> like like chiseled jaw bros. And and like super hot women, because well, like Texas that's what it's like. That's just like what you do, I guess, in, in today's world. I do think, though, historically, I don't know if I buy it because there were periods in, in history, right, where the merchant class was viewed much less favorably than than they are today. And I, I, I think like the rise of art and the rise of sales kind of like like it's such a boomer thing, right? It's like, like the boomer, as you said, we have this bifurcation of sales and art and the boomers believe in, they believe in art, you know, like you should be an artist. Whereas artisans, right? Like they never, they didn't want worshiped like they are today. Like we worship artists today. Artists used to not be so sexy and cool. Like they, as they are now, we think of it that way now because our boomer parents like worship the artist. But there are plenty of generations where it was like not cool to be an artist at, yeah. at all. I think the greatest generation was was definitely one. Um, and I think that that has we that's gotten way out of control. Like as we talked about in the last episode, which was really great. You know, the the hype dad creative director has become afraid of his own ideas because he thinks his ideas are not creative enough. 
Um, and it's a weird like reversal of, of things. So I guess um, for either of you, uh, where do you think that the marketing world is at today? Like in, in your experiences and like last time in your episode, we talked a lot about how the creativity is being sapped. So I wonder what you guys have seen in your world and how, how you're doing it differently now. Adam, you want to grab this? Sure. So I think we did a good job in our previous podcast, which I'm sure um, Isaac will link if you didn't yeah, oh, hear yeah, it, definitely. about um, the creative crisis happening in the ad and marketing sector. I think that's been something that has been ongoing for you know the last ten years for a number of reasons. You know, we mentioned um, we mentioned safetyism. We mentioned perhaps the Fed and too easy monetary policy creating a situation where there's not as much of a sense of urgency or a, a direness of advertising and marketing to support a business when there's so much free money or you know there there there's to, to, there's an environment where you know perhaps some market will respond negatively to something iconoclast or what, whatever else could be happening. Um, I think there's another part of the creative crisis we didn't talk about, and that's potentially um, leaning on data too much to inform marketing. Because what can happen is when you continue to lean on data, you end up similarly to using AI and using a prompt is you end up optimizing for averages and you end up getting these sort of middle of the road ideas. Uh, yeah. And so, so that's a risk when to a good extent, if you're a big consumer brand, well, what's going to get people's attention novelty. And mm -hmm. if you optimize for, you know, using AI tools, you get the antithesis of novelty. You get, you know, the, the, the median, right. You get the, the middle of what everyone else's thoughts were. And so I think, these things are coming together where you see ads that, you know, I, I keep getting the same Lexus ad, not to call out anyone in particular, on <laughs> Hulu, where it looks like 20 people came up with this ad. They had everything. It's like they had graphics. They had, you know, a bunch of people playing instruments. They had, you know, rainbows, like, rainbows. They did have rainbows. <laughs> and um, the thing is, is that there's too much going on. Like, I, it, it's not like this singular vision and with advertising chris mentioned you only have a few seconds to communicate an idea um so if you're going to be spending all this money to put ads on streaming or you know ads on a billboard or something like that i think distilling it to a simpler message you know you don't notice a really effective campaign slogan for a politician having a ton of words like if you were to think back to house of cards had a wonderful campaign slogan america works i remember it right now and it was two yeah. words yeah. and so so, you know, you want this beautiful, simplistic thing. And this isn't just marketing. This is all art, right? If you listen to, uh, you know, what music do you remember? Say for a genre like shoegaze, it's usually pretty simple. The things that stick in our head and are timeless. Because it's sort of common to to do something that is, that is busy. And it, it takes an artist to choose the elements that you exclude that you exclude, which is really hard, you know, cutting the things you mentioned on our last podcast, uh, the Irishman, you know, where they let Scorsese just go nuts. And no one said, dude, you know, may maybe, maybe you don't need this scene too. Right. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I, I think that it's an opportunity though, whether you are an artist or an advertiser or a sub stacker or really anyone to, 
sort of beat your own drum and take things a unique direction, maybe unencumbered by a group, maybe unencumbered by data. Um, it's hearsay at a company not to use data to inform all decisions. The problem there is it can help you make great decisions, but it can also be a crutch and it can be, okay, well, you know, a hundred other companies did something like this. So we're going to too, or, yeah. you, you know, in the past, you know, this type of ad worked for us and maybe that's true. And maybe, you know, you, you should keep doing it, but at the same time, what other bets are you going to make that, that are new? And just to bring this all together, the problem, if you just keep optimizing on what you already have is you get something like the star Wars franchise, you get something that probably should have been killed, you know, a while ago. And instead, it's just milked because there's that nostalgic bit. And the problem is, you know, you're eventually going to get like, have you seen the cartoon of like the overmilked cow that looks emaciated? Oh, right? no. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 this, um, you know, there's a limit to how much creativity you can get from an idea before it's completely, you know, done out. And if you don't refresh those brands, if you're, um, a studio and you don't refresh your franchises and do something different and invest in something new, eventually you're going to uh, probably be seen as this old dusty thing. Um, hopefully, I I don't know the extent that we can stay in this stuck, stuck culture forever without everyone's brain being to some extent poisoned by it, but it's obviously not a healthy thing. I don't oh, know why you would stay for a very long time, Matt. but it, it's, it's not good, forever. right? It's not. No. Good. So well, this is what's so depressing. I mean, the biggest black pill is if you look at history, there's very long periods where nothing was really be happening. You know I mean? There's there, you can always find something and you can always, Oh, there's always a historian, blah, blah, blah. So there'll always be some kind of interesting art that happens for a long time. But I genuinely believe that the West, what happened is we hit like the gold mine of the art of our era from like 1960 to 2020 of filmic art. Like that was it. Like that was the time, you know, that was when all the good shit was being made. And we'll look back like in, you know, a thousand years, people will watch The Godfather and, and be like, you know, just like we do with uh, these great works from the past. And I think it's amazing that we were so lucky to get to see it, but I don't, I think it's done, man. I, I think we're, we're not going to go back to that level of artistry because so many things have to go right. You know, you, you just have to have this cauldron. I just read this incredible book. I think maybe I even mentioned this in the last one. I just finished it and it's called difficult men. And it's about the brief era of great TV we had starting with The Sopranos and like ending with Game of Thrones, right? Where we had these incredible shows. We had Deadwood, we had uh, Six Feet Under, we had um, Mad Men, uh, we had, uh, what's the, you know, Bad, Breaking Bad. We had this short little period where it was like all the good shit happened on TV. And when you're looking behind the scenes of that era, it's like, it's these kind of crazy madmen, not not madmen like Madison Avenue men, but like genuinely genuinely like crazy. And <laughs> they're somehow able to just like get in the right place at the right time where they well, were able to make this good shit. It's and it's like, so that was it. It's so interesting you mentioned that. So let's talk about Elon for just a hot minute. Yeah, okay. So Elon is a Elon is basically a crazy person because anyone who decides after making fuck you money in you know his 
in PayPal in whenever they sold and had their liquidity event and he's buying the McLaren or whatever he bought to go and keep doing more companies. Like he's basically our modern Howard Hughes. Yeah. And I don't think people understand you don't get iconoclast ideas from like a normal guy. Like that has to be a crazy yes, person. You have the, to be crazy. You have so, to be nuts. And so not I only, think, yeah, it, you can have, okay. You can have the ideas, but to carry them out, you know, that's is a crazy person. Yeah, and you got to be nuts. You got to be totally nuts. I think like we don't understand how to how to harness support and then be okay with people being crazy in one dimension and not being crazy in every other dimension. Like you don't you don't get to pick and choose. It's right. like Good. so yeah. Oh, I hate these people. Oh my god, my least favorite thing is these fucking stupid articles where a uh, 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 you know a. Uh, a, a, you know, woman in Brooklyn is saying, can we separate the art from the man? Like, and it's this long think piece about her being appalled at the actions of Picasso. And it's just like, shut the fuck. No one cares. Like, like, and, and you know, it's, it's like, it's just this massive signaling and that's, what's destroying the environment. It's like, we have to be so well-behaved and it's like the whole, entire point is that you're you're not you can't be you have to be fucking nuts in order to get this shit done and every now and then like for a brief minute society like allows that to happen and then it goes back into being shitty again for like a long time you know you would think people in the humanities would understand this morning it's generally humanities people who get upset at people who who act human if you were a student of humanity and you you know pattern match back to the past, you'd be like, oh, okay, this is our modern Howard Hughes. Well, he's nuts, but also he's doing all these cool things and innovating for the world. So, yeah. you know. Well, there are some of us who believe it. You have very few people, you know, swinging for outside the ballpark. I mean, yeah. Elon, Elon bets the farm every single time. That's, I mean, that's why I respect <laughs> Well, but wait, so Adam and, and both of you, I wanted to get some of these juicy stories that you have from, from the world of marketing. So uh, can you tell me any of these before? I don't want to run out of time before you, before you tell some of them, you say you have some of these great stories. So what, what, what did you mean? Um, I, I think a good one for recent past, and you might have to be an advertising professional to appreciate this, but maybe not. Um, if re recently we saw a lot of companies make big bets on the metaverse, quote unquote. And so this was, you know, companies yeah. like MasterCard spending seven figures yeah. on a metaverse experience <laughs> that 50 people showed up for, right? What was and, the one with the video? What There was one specific that was really- I mean, there was a bunch of them. There was a bunch of them. But yeah, one here, was like a movie screen. It was like a movie showing and like no one came and people throw tomatoes at the screen. And the, by the way, they'll win awards at the stupid festival in France yeah. this week for doing it because they'll spin it like watch time or make up numbers. And here's the thing. There's no one to check them. It's basically outright fraud in yeah. broad daylight in corporate America that the CMO does because they don't know what else to do with more money than God, which we can talk <laughs> about the CMO leadership crisis if you want. Two-year revolving door in that role. Yeah. Chris is actually running an op-ed uh, this week about that, Whoa. which will be interesting. Oh, but, yeah. What's, but, wait, wait, what's your what's your point in that, Chris? Let's hear, let's hear about it. I mean, you know, you get your typical Gartner report every year. It's like, oh, marketing leaders are trying to be, develop competencies in X, Y, and Z. And those competencies in, of X, Y, and Z have been exactly the same for the last 15 years. And despite, you know, the budgets that they get every year, uh, all of that is wasted and effectively, you know, 
then the Gartner list comes out the the subsequent year. It's the same three things, and uh, nobody's learned these things. And so, uh, as a result, you have uh, you have a bunch of unoriginal ideas, uninspired ideas, uh, and that, I'll leave it at that. And you get y'all can check it out when uh, when it yeah uh, this gets is published. There's 65 billion a year still spent on linear TV. And yeah, I ask all of our previous podcast guests right. this question, do they pay for cable? And the answer is not a single one. Yeah. So you're advertising, it's it's just pharma ads to boomers. It's pharma but, ads to boomers, like 100%. That's it's a, crazy. That's all it is. Yeah. It's insanity. Totally. Anyway, but all, what were you saying about the metaverse? So anyway, all this metaverse stuff happened, but none of it was surprising for me because I used to sit on the agency side. And many years ago in you know, the last cycle, 2008, 2009, there were um, game studios that were pitching my clients to do what? To create an advert game, which was a game experience that was like this branded experience for big Fortune 500 clients that could pay seven figures for this. And they, you know, made a game which you're not going to compete with Blizzard or Activision or, you know, any of these game studios. You, you just can't. And again, no one showed up, but the CMO would do it because this, this fancy new digital thing, right? And so anyway, I saw the same grift play out 10 years ago. And so I was pretty vocal this cycle about the metaverse, which I was right about. I mean, I don't think that was a hard one to call. I think everyone pretty much saw that. But I only shared the story because, um, speaking of CMOs, there none of them used social media at, at the start of social yeah. media. None of them really, you know, watch YouTube. None of them participated in much of anything in terms of the internet revolution. Um, they sit in their gilded, you know, in, in their gilded castles. And this, to tie it back, this is why we get such decisions like the Bud Light campaign where they paid, you know, random influencers who didn't make even sense for their brand to do silly things. We are, you know, there's a leadership crisis in marketing. These are the people that are the ones making decisions that ruin, you know, century old brands. Um, the, the most ironic part about all of this though, is I was on the agency side as well when Facebook had just launched brand pages. And for one of my largest clients, national brand, 5,000 locations across America, a quick serve restaurant, um, they, their CMO was like, wait, why would I want to have a social media presence for my brand? And I showed the CMO, hey, there's 5,000 different fans had built pages ranging from like a thousand to up to 200,000 people had opted into hearing messages. I'm like, your fans are already organizing around your brand online and they want to you hear mean, from you. You mean that the fans made like fan Yeah, 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 yeah. The yeah, fans yeah. made fan pages yeah. before brands did this. And I'm like, yeah. you can either have the master one and have a marketing channel to these people, or you can just, and, and be in control, or you can just let the internet talk about you and you know never even hear free feedback. And they said no to this idea. So I'm the one who went rogue as you know, the young consultant, and I built their brand page. I built the first million member um, restaurant oh, cool. brand on Facebook, like pretty early. And then eventually, this is so funny because the agency that had sold in the same brand, the seven figure advert game idea was telling them, no, you don't want to use social media for your company. So they were wrong on all accounts and they didn't want something accountable. They just wanted to sell in. So anyway, I just shared the story because like the grifting throughout the ages never changes. It's 
something that doesn't require accountability. It's this big complex thing that gets sold in probably yeah. not true, just in advertising or marketing. And it's seen as the, the best part of the grift is it's always seen as an experiment. Oh, we'll do this as an experiment, <laughs> the new thing. And so I'm not giving you a playbook for grifting, but also if you wanted to do this, I, I'd, I wouldn't do this because I wouldn't sleep all night, but it seems like this seems like a common thing we saw with crypto as well, where brands were doing things with crypto as an experiment because yeah, it's the yeah, inevitable yeah. future. And so it, it, it's, it boggles my mind because these are, these are pretty common sense things, but you get a little bit of a sense if you have imposter syndrome in, in corporate America or in any part of your life or the business world. Um, just look around and I don't think you need to have this anymore. Um, <laughs> there's almost no common sense anywhere. People say yes to stupid things. It's an absurd world. Um, but you know, find, we talked about craft, find the things that you enjoy and you can have a little bit of craft at, and you know, you can play this game and you know, whatever it is with the world and refine your skills and, um, uh, you know, have something that gets you up in the morning. So, right. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about borrowed interests, <clears throat> and it's uh, everything has been reduced to borrowed interest in the advertising world. And you're so right that it's like people just say, well, let's try it. And they just want to uh, say the thing that is the buzzword, and therefore then they're going to you know, get paid. And really, advertising was never meant to be that. Advertising was never meant to be this, like... I mean, okay, at its core, you want to put the billboard in the stream of traffic, wherever that traffic is. So there is some justification for like trying to get into Web3, right? Uh, for these brands. The justification is to get a story by the industry trades to say right, you're that. an innovative yeah, company. Right. And guess what? None of your users care. No, 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 so no. Nobody cares. You can win award. You can win awards, and you can get backpats from people right. in the industry, or you can make money. I don't think you can do both. Yeah. Well, it's also it's not just making money. It's it's like, um, I mean, it, the the great campaigns in history they were not really designed to make money first, and they certainly weren't borrowed interest. I mean, there was never been a great campaign in history that was like, oh, you know. Look, a brand uses crypto, you know, <laughs> like there was never, it was always like a commentary on that. You know, that's what great advertising really is. Or it's just completely timeless, like the Coca-Cola billboard, where it's just ultra simple and, and ultra cool. Ironically, it was a crypto company that had a cool Super Bowl ad. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. What'd you think of the ads uh, in this Super Bowl, this last one? Terrible. Yeah. I'd, totally unmemorable. The only thing I remember is Mr. Beast running through one, and I couldn't tell you the brand that it was. I could just <laughs> yeah. tell you it was Mr. Beast. <laughs> right. How much did they give him for that? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was mostly a nostalgia play and uh, washed up, <laughs> washed up D-list celebrities and, and you know, <laughs> in these commercials. And I was like, yeah. why are you even here? <laughs> Uh, here's a good one to, to end on, um, Twitter. So you mentioned Twitter before you mentioned Elon. Mm -hmm. He obviously has a massive problem right now, uh, with advertisers, right? That's his big struggle is that he's, as far as I can see it, he's got the revenue here and the revenue here, and he's can't make these numbers work. He can't make the pay to the, the blue option, which is subscription revenue. He can't make it anywhere 
near. So how here's really the question, the first question I had for you. How the hell does Twitter, which doesn't even convert well, make $4 billion a year in advertising? Like, is that, you know, five big advertisers just giving them all that money? Or is it a bunch of small ones? Like, and why is, and why is their revenue so much less than Facebook? Do you know? I mean, brand ads. So they were making that because brands can justify a percent of their digital allocation to like like the number number three social product or number Mm -hmm. four or whatever Mm -hmm. it is by users. So it's, they're not, you could track Twitter to revenue, but these companies weren't using it for that. And maybe they shouldn't just like, you know, Reddit's pretty bad at generating revenue. Um, I think the only reason Facebook is so good is they had a great ad ops team. Uh, Twitter could have hired a better ad ops team. They elected not to do that for reasons that I, I'll never understand because there's a clear, um, there there were a bunch of people in you know the tech sector that know how to build these platforms in such a way that there's an easy button basically where you can tell the machine to, hey, go bring me users who are more likely to convert uh, like the previous ones and Twitter just never built that. Um, but yeah, in terms of why they had so much money in revenue brand would be the answer. So yeah. it's, it's, so yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna add to that, that uh, when Elon came in, he, the first thing he said was like, we have a terrible ad product that can't even do basic targeting. And that, if you wanna know why Facebook has so much more money than Twitter, it's because uh, contextual relevance in, as opposed to targeting this person. And that's that's pretty much the extent of what you can do right now. But I think they're changing that sh- uh, very quickly. I see. So it's because Facebook can just sell so much more ads because it can more hyper-target people based on their interests. They their interests, right. What, what, what is contextual? That means like in the feed? Yeah, stuff that you interact with. Uh, and you that's know, what the, Twitter is. Twitter is the contextual. No, 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 the Twitter is more like brand mass reach. Uh, oh, got it, got it. Okay. And yeah, when yeah. you signed up for Facebook, you basically told Facebook everything about your life. So there's yeah. a lot more structured data that could be used to help figure out what might be, what might interest you. We all told Facebook the music, the movies, the food, you know, the schools, you know, all of this stuff. And so it's it's like their their data targeting is crazy. So okay, so but and also, I mean, I'm sure even if you can't track it exactly, like these big brands are finding out that they're making more revenue from Facebook and Google, right? And yeah, and orders of magnitude more users too. Although Mm -hmm. one could argue the Twitter audience and to some extent the Reddit audience are higher value online because those are, as uh, Seth Godin calls them, the sneezers of the internet. They're the people who they sneeze and they tell the rest of the world their story. And (laughs) advertisers don't understand that or factor that in. It's it's not something that's considered. Um, how the internet works, most of corporate America doesn't, they don't really understand. No, um, they, they understand to that. the they yeah. understand to the extent that the ad tool tells them you're reaching this many users and so they run an ad, but they don't really understand how ideas spread online. No, definitely. Uh, so what's gonna happen now? What's gonna happen here from here on out? What, what do you predict is the future of Twitter? Advertising. Um, in terms of advertisers, I mean, look, they hired kind of the yin to the yang of Elon, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> um, with their new CEO. And so um, I think the internet is probably a bit crazier in terms of, oh, no, we can't run ads on Twitter because we don't like Elon versus, you know, a 
Fortune 500, you know, CEO and CMO. So I think th those discussions can be had. And um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't see why with the right team, they couldn't bring ad dollars back. One thing that confounds me is as a performance marketer by trade, I've never looked at like the owner of a newspaper or the owner of an internet platform when choosing to, to use it for ads. That's not really my job. My job is to bring in money for the company. And so it seems to me like this is a, a relatively new thing that companies are electing to make decisions based on perceived political preference of, of platform owners. It's not like you see, um, you know, the owner of the Washington Post or or Fox or anything like that be factored in to an advertiser's mind. So that's a new thing for me. It seems a little strange. Um, our job is to make money for companies, build brands, you know, connect with audiences, not, you know, we're, we're not, we're not here to make a vote or anything like that. So that's been an interesting thing, but it doesn't mean, I, I, I think Twitter could win back some of that ad money if that was their path. Well, I think some has come back already. Well, I, I mean, but I mean, I think that that's just a function of the ineffectiveness of Twitter, right? I mean, it's like that. What I've always said is the reason why they're comfortable doing that is because they don't really need the Twitter ad spend. The, the Twitter ad spend is just a, you know, another check on their budget, as you're saying, third most used social platform. It's just some small percentage of their overall spend. So they're like, all right, well, look, if this guy's not forwarding our interests, we're not really getting anything out of this anyway. You know, why would we can, if we can throw our weight around and press him, you know, down and it doesn't affect actually our revenue, which is probably true. Right. I mean, like, do you, don't you think that probably that Twitter ad spend, if all I mean, of them just stopped doing it, would they even notice? Like look, maybe. The number one company in the world, Apple, is still running ads on Twitter. And That's they have a true. pretty damn That's good true. ad ops team. So yeah. here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm running ads on Twitter right now for, for my company, and it is free alpha when there isn't the same amount of competitiveness in ad yeah. auctions. All of ads online are auction-based. So I'm paying basically a fraction of the costs that I would pay on Google and Facebook. So there's value bets there that I'll take all day as a capitalist, and I'm not going to play political games. I, I really don't care. Um, so, yeah. you know... I, I think a company, if a company like Apple is going to do that, then, you know, I think other brands in that vein that aren't just, you know, filled with maybe not as capitalist people, <laughs> um, uh, but I'll vote, I'll go with the Apple marketers all day. They know what they're doing. So. Yeah. They probably know better than almost anybody, right? Like yeah. what they're actually doing. And right. If you can get it for cheap, then everybody should really, everybody should be doing it. It's the like, other, I almost, yeah, sorry. No, the other, the other yeah. thing is, is like, um, one could say, and you could make a pretty valid argument about this, that if you're a brand, you actually want to be where the, the spectacle begins online. And one could say Twitter is one of those places, like that's the starting point of memes, one starting point of memes and discussions. And so like you're sort of, it, it's certainly not the start of the stream online if, if you know where a lot of discussions really begin, but it is the starting point of a lot of discussions. So I would want my brand there if I were a consumer brand. Um, I think the brands that have pulled back get a free wave of press. Oh, we're pulling ads from this platform. Like to me, if, if like, I, I don't understand why that's so newsworthy that I'm a brand pulling ads from a platform. Like why do we even care so much? 
But um, it's interesting because I think if you were to lay bare the politics of, you know, Jeff Bezos versus Elon versus all these people and Jeff owns the Washington Post super liberal publication, like you could make an argument to or not advertise on any of these things based on what these guys think. I just don't know that why this is the remit of someone. It's like, you know, I think we're into weird territory. It's not really our jobs as marketers. So do you think that now that we are in this situation where this is all politicized and so many brands are willing to forego a good deal uh, on on advertising uh, because of politics, do you see this bifurcation happening where there's now going to be like in the parallel economy of right-wing businesses? No, I don't think it'll be left or right-wing. I think, I think on a long enough timeline, performance marketers will eat the impressions for value cost and it won't it won't be you know super left or super right it'll just be people who want to you know run ads against it'll be ideas. capitalists versus yeah. non-capitalists Capitalist <laughs> win on a long enough timeline unless we go full socialist well, which but be our timeline. that is yeah. left versus right i mean that that is the definition of left versus right if you think about it right i, I mean like the, yeah sorry the delineation will happen uh basically those who choose to let culture wars inform their advertising and their marketing and those that don't. And I think the the great schism will be uh, performance of the business, right? If you keep on throwing uh, things that don't represent your brand or staying true to your brand or whatever is the current thing as part of your marketing campaign, then people are going to just drown that out and be like, okay, this is like every other ad that I've seen. And so you're going to see, uh, basically quality quality of the company is going to be predicated on whether or not the marketing team decides to participate in you know whatever pe people are yelling about that day jerome yeah, needs this, to keep sorry. raising 500 basis points until no one's having these discussions wait say, say that one more time i said jerome needs to keep raising like 500 oh, basis yeah. points right. at a time <laughs> until no, one, no one's having these discussions no one will there will be no more uh you know shrill <laughs> screaming groups inside these companies that will be able to do anything well, but a lot of it's coming from the top too. You gotta. It's not just that these companies are being torn down by woke employees; they're also being dictated by BlackRock, right? I mean, they're also being pushed from the top. It's they're getting it from the top and the bottom, and they're they're just super susceptible to it. So, I mean, I hope what you're saying happens that it divides in the capitalist and leftist. I or and you know not so capitalist. I really genuinely hope that that's what happens, but. There's something about um, the other side that we talked about last time that it's like, I, it's like, I feel like they're not going to let us do it, right? Like, I mean, where, so we are saying performance marketers. So let's talk about who are the clients of a performance marketer? Isn't it a lot of like, uh, I mean, yeah, who are the generally the, there's a difference between a performance marketer and just a brand marketer. So who are generally the clients of a performance marketer? I mean, they should converge, but the client of the performance marketer is, you know, should, should ultimately be the CMO and the CMO must report into CFO and CEO. So we need CEO and CFO to tell their marketing teams not to screw around and to run ads in places that make sense at a good rate. But why don't they do that now? <laughs> Like what, what happened to them? Why, what, why did, what happened? Like where, where did they get that idea go? I mean, do we have another hour to talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't.
But okay. Well, uh, anyway, thank you guys so much. This was great. Uh, I love geeking out on this stuff. I think, I think it's just so important. You know, I mean, I think it's like under, it's really the key to understanding everything that's happening right now in culture is advertising. And I really believe that that's why Bud Light was such a cultural like explosion because it was so, I mean, think about it. When's the last time that much has been made of an ad? Never. And it, it's like, because that was such a key to understanding what's happening. I think. Can you imagine, by the way, running marketing at Bud Light and basically torching the share price because <laughs> of one of your stupid, small, tiny, like a fraction of a fraction of your, of your spend. Campaign. Like it's know, such, no. it's like a round oh error of their spend. A, a fraction that probably, they probably gave, you know, whatever that dude's name is. Uh, a hundred, like $200, you know, they probably could. I mean, I used to do that influencer marketing. I know how much we paid those people. Yeah. Nothing. It breaks like my so brain. So little. So well, yeah, for, for a thousand dollars spend, you know, maybe 2000, she torched the entire company. And you know, place. I mean, but it's really quick. It's not fair, right? It's really not fair. It's, 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 it's absurd. She it just was wrong place, wrong time with the wrong person. And she just happened to get all the anger of the entire thing at once, which is almost like, you know, it's not really like justified, but at the same time, it's like, well, it was going to happen at a certain point. There's, there's, I mean, we've been talking about, you know, what's, what's wrong in the advertising world, but let's talk about what's right really quick. Just like, Two minutes. Oh yeah, of course. Do you see please, the Do you please. see the Diablo ad in Times Square? The, the oh, so I still haven't seen Prob it. Probably the most shared piece of uh, advertising oh, what was that? ever. So they had a Welcome to Hell billboard for Diablo Four, Activision Blizzard's new game. Uh, the Caleb Caleb rules the dude from I think Spotify, big brand marketer knows oh, and it was knows his audience but it was also 666 or it was you know june 6th <laughs> on a monday all billboard campaigns launch on monday and it just so happened that canada lit its whole thing on fire yeah all right damn i didn't realize it was also 666 that's amazing uh, i mean that's so great. that's always so the, that's why the billboards most, are awesome the most shared image online that's last week so by great. orders of i gotta Madison. save this i gotta say every it. single person who has a better view viral what there's there's a better angle. Uh, yeah, there's a better angle. Music. But every single person who posted this, um, it went viral. Every single person. There it is. Oh, That's the one. Okay. Like, how fucking good is that? Yeah. Incredible. It's <laughs> amazing. Just give give Lulu maybe, an Maybe Activision it was race. all. Maybe it was all a. Uh, you know, <laughs> fires were also. Oh, and they made that. and they um made six hundred sixty six million in revenue from Diablo. Oh, I think they. I think they Diablo cut off. Great their like spend on that point to issue that press release so we've made six but it doesn't matter it's so so great yeah it's actually really funny my rabbi uh was like getting into advertising and he was making they okay so you know when you do one show right like i don't know if you guys know about one show but one show is like the uh, advertising competition and these brands that want to generate publicity for their new campaigns sponsor the one show so everybody does spec campaigns for these brands and Diablo was one of them. And my rabbi was making all these like hell related ads. And I said to him, like, isn't this like bad? Like, shouldn't you not be doing this? And he was like, you know what? You're totally right. And he like stopped doing it because it was like, you just, putting satanic imagery to return to the beginning of our conversation. You're putting satanic imagery into the world, right? I mean, this was actually very innocuous, really. The billboard yeah. itself is very simple That's and fine. like not bad. But 
I mean, you could think of really terrible stuff to put on billboards uh, if you wanted. And it's amazing that all those factors converge. It's great. Um, cool guys. Well, Hey, thank you so much. Uh, this was really awesome. And yeah, anybody who needs OOH, we, we got to go to you guys and, and talk about it. Right. Yep. yep. Thank you. It's uh, super easy. Cool guys. Yep. Where can people find you? I'm findable online under my name, Adam Singer. Pretty easy. You can Google me. I've got Substack, Twitter, you can find me on LinkedIn. If you want to connect wherever, wherever there's internet users. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dapper Marketer um, and or on adquick.com. That's uh, where you can find our business if you want to get into autofoam advertising. Awesome. Cool, guys. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Isaac.